So we are in the midst of looking at Isaiah 40 to 55 in these weeks and titled the series of Tidings of Comfort and Joy that grew out of its beginning, which was during Advent. And for these last few weeks, we have been looking at a series of opposites. And I think those opposites and the interplay between those two things kind of shape the songs that we are hearing that Isaiah sings to us in this section. This These passages, these 16 chapters are, as I've said in the past, like a playlist that accompanies the journey of faith. They are like the Psalms of Ascents in in the Psalms, Psalms 120 through 135. Isaiah 40 to 55 are songs for the pilgrim journey. They are for the people as they are headed out from exile in Babylon and back to Jerusalem. And As we look at the interplay between these opposites, we see in them some, just some great examples of what it means to always be walking that journey of faith. And last week we looked at the interplay between remembering and forgetting. And today we look at the interplay between shame and confidence. And we've already read one of the passages that I want to attend to in the sermon today, and that's Linda read it for us, Isaiah 54, 1 to 5, and now I'd like to read the other, Isaiah 52, verses 1 through 12. Awake, awake, and put on strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city, for the uncircumcised and the unclean shall enter you no more. Shake yourself from the dust, rise up, O captive Jerusalem, loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, long ago my people went down into Egypt to reside there as aliens. The Assyrian too has oppressed them without cause. Now therefore, What am I doing here, says the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away without cause? Their rulers howl, says the Lord, and continually all day long my name is despised. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day they shall know that it is I who speak. Here am I. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of the messenger who announces peace, who brings good news, who announces salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, your sentinels lift up their voices. Together they sing for joy, for in plain sight they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you ruins of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all of the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of it. Purify yourselves, you who carry the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out in haste, and you shall not go out in flight. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Let's pray. Lord, we seek to receive from your hand the embrace and your arms, the embrace of the assurance that we are yours, that you have called us by name and we belong to you. So help us to rest in that place today. And may that identity 
be the invitation out of a place of darkness and shame and into a place of confidence and boldness. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Reading the passage today and the, the invitation to put on those beautiful garments makes me think a lot about something that my mother was probably an expert in, and that was the fact that if you wore the right thing to someplace, the kind of thing that was appropriate for that place, you always felt more confident than if you didn't wear the right thing to that place and didn't have on the clothes that made you feel confident. And that that makes her sound like something that I don't want her to sound like because I think all of us three kids enjoyed and appreciated that about her is that, you know, like the woman in Proverbs 31 dressed her children well. And uh, I remember my sister Susan talking about how, you know, she had the wherewithal to drag Susan out to get the right dress for a particular event. And, you know, as we celebrated her life at her memorial service, that was one of the stories that my sister told. But I had my own story about that. It wasn't just the women in the family that were sent out well-clothed. It was also the only male son, uh, only male child in the family that got sent out that way. And I, when I was student body president in my senior year at, at our high school, I had a, a duty to perform. I was supposed to be the master of ceremonies at the homecoming halftime show, uh, which also gave me the responsibility of announcing who the homecoming queen was, of introducing them in their, the five candidates as they drove around the stadium track in their open air convertibles and uh, were introduced and then escorted out onto the field to some music, I don't know what it was, then I was introducing them as they came out. I was to introduce them as they came out. And, and I realized I really didn't have what I needed to have to wear to this event. I had nice clothes, but I, my wardrobe had not caught up with my growth. And so I, I went to my mother and I said, you know, I've got to do this thing on Friday night. It was a couple of weeks before, you know, Friday night at the football game. And um, she says, well, what is it? I said, well, I've got to introduce the homecoming queen candidates, and I, I really need some nicer clothes, and you know, just maybe a new pair of pants and a shirt or something, and I didn't want her to spend that much money, and she said, why didn't you tell me this? <laughs> and I said, well, I didn't know, and she says, well, of course you need more than just a pair of pants and a shirt. We need to get you a, a blazer jacket and new shoes and a shirt and tie and everything else, and so off we went to Harris's department store and we got it all done, and I was very confidently able to perform that task of being the master of ceremonies at the homecoming game. And it is just that whole notion of putting on one's beautiful garments and the sense of confidence that that is wedded with in, in this text that's drawn me to that illustration and also just to this text in general. It's, the, it's an assurance that God is giving to the exiled Israel that they will have proper clothes to wear after having been degraded in the way that they were degraded. That the rags of servitude and exile are going to be replaced by these beautiful garments that God will give. And it's really what the text is saying is the shame that you feel because of your defeat and captivity is going to be replaced 
by confidence. So wake up to who you are, because in my eyes, you are those who are beautiful and belong to me. And put on the beautiful garments that I will provide you that give witness to who I know you to be. That's what the prophet is bringing to his people. And there are three metaphors really in both of these texts, in Isaiah 52 that I read and Isaiah 54 that Linda read earlier, that illustrate the shame that Israel felt as a result of the exile. And the things that literally have happened to them. And throughout this section, what the prophet does is he likens Israel to a woman who has been affected by war. It's a very feminine set of feminine images for Israel. It's you are like the woman who has suffered the strains of war. And women suffer in war in a way that the men who fight the war do not. They are collateral damage, if you will. And their world and the world that they manage is just destroyed and, and therefore they are, they are victims of that. And what the prophet is doing here is talking about three things, literally, that happen to women in war and how they're victimized. And all of those things are identified as what Israel itself is experiencing, that the women are a metaphor for the poverty and the shame resulting from that poverty that comes upon the women. The three things, the women are victims of sexual violence in war. Rape is an act of war in, throughout history, and it's alluded to here. And I don't pull any punches when it says, when the promise is that the uncircumcised and the unclean will enter you no more is a very graphic image of that. You know, people like to sanitize the Bible. It's a pretty earthy book and a pretty disturbing book in a lot of ways. Here's one of those disturbing places. So this won't happen to you anymore. So put on your beautiful garments. Get up out of the dust. Put off your chains, the chains of a wicked subjugation. That is not what will define you as you move forward. The second thing is widowhood. What happens in war is that men die. What happens in war, therefore, is that the birth rate goes down. What happens in war is that women that survive don't have babies. And in a Semitic culture where it was the essence of the, not only their identity, but their duty, their job, the thing they did for society was to carry children. And yet the, the note here is, is that you've been effectively barren. And so the men are killed off and the women are left unprotected, alone, and do not even have children to be with them. And then finally, there's the same idea, but the whole notion of barrenness is also mentioned here. And there's a barrenness that's due to the lack of men being there, but there's also a barrenness, as we know in a modern understanding, due to infertility. 
And, you know, you have stories of barrenness throughout the Bible of, of women who feel shame because they're barren, because they cannot play the role that they are designed uh, to play. I just pause to say here, we view these things very differently in the 21st century than, than a Semitic culture of 6th century BC. So just please, you know, put on your 6th century BC glasses <laughs> if you can <laughs> and not take offense to these things because they are real feelings that women have in this context and that aren't mitigated by some of the things that we believe now. But they're still hard. All three of these things obviously are still devastating to women. And God is essentially saying to Israel, you're, you're like this woman who has been dislocated and dispossessed of her identity because of war. And that's another way to talk about shame. Because shame is essentially who I am and what I'm experiencing is not who I'm supposed to be and what I'm supposed to experience. It's that dislocation between what we know ourselves to be and think that we should be doing and what we're actually experiencing. It's the shame is the suffering that is the difference between who you are and who you would rather be. And so we often think of shame as resulting from some willful wrong that we've committed. And indeed, shame often is the result of some kind of action that elicits a response from others that says, you should be ashamed of yourself for what you've done. But that's not the kind of shame we're talking about here. In some ways, more often than not, it's the fact that the deepest shame is planted in us not by what we have done, but by something that has been done to us. It's a wound inflicted that makes us feel useless, abandoned, undeserving, and without a sense of self or belonging. And that's the shame that's being addressed here. It's a shame that requires a radical redefinition of the way we see ourselves in order to be healed. And that's what this passage communicates. God says you are not worthless and useless. You are not abandoned and alone. You are not naked and pitiable. Because I've called you by name and you're mine. So wake up. Loose the bonds from your neck, shake off the dust, rise up and put on your beautiful garments. It's an invitation to claim the identity that God gives. And let confidence therefore displace and drive out the shame and reverse that shameful status. Prepare for an end to fruitlessness and Make your tents bigger and stronger. That's a marvelous passage that Linda read for us, you know, because your tents are going to be filled with children. You know, I just want to read that again. You know, sing, O barren one who did not bear, burst into song and shout, you who have not been in labor, for the children of the desolate woman will be more numerous than the children of her that is married, says the Lord. 
Enlarge the site of your tent. Let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. In other words, build bigger houses. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes, for you will spread out to the right and to the left, and your descendants will possess the nations and will settle the desolate towns. Things are changing, in other words. So make room in your tents, because they're about to be filled with children. And the source of that confidence is the one who made you. And we go on to read in verses 4 and 5, Do not fear, for you will not be ashamed. Do not be discouraged, for you will not suffer disgrace. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the disgrace of your widowhood. You will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth, he is called. You belong, in other words. So do not fear. Do not fear, for you will not be ashamed. You belong in life and in death, not merely to yourself and not to the wretched story you have had to live. You belong to God. So walk out of the exile and toward the open arms of God. It's a call to confidence. It's a call that is stated so beautifully in verses 11 and 12 of of Isaiah 52, inviting them to leave exile in Babylon, depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing, go out from the midst of it, purify yourselves, you who carry the vessels of the Lord, for you shall not go out in haste, and you shall not go out in flight, for the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. It's an invitation to confidence, to a life, and that's what confidence means, a life with faith, confide. A life with faith, a life trusting in the faithfulness of God, a life that believes the declaration that we're free and that therefore there's no need to flee, no need to run from our captors. And that's the difference between the exodus from Egypt and the exodus from Babylon. Your overlord has been defeated, so walk calmly and walk with your head held high out of this captivity. You can confidently and calmly walk away from captivity because God is both leading you and protecting you. God is going before you and is also your rear guard. So for some reason, like I've told you before, my 1970 memories are uh, hot in me, and that's what I can think about when I'm thinking about illustrations for these ideas. And the song that crashed into my awareness today was from 1972 by Rod Argent, uh, Hold Your Head High is the title. And if you've ever heard this song, it has this just this driving bass line that just makes you And then it has this incredible, almost church-sounding organ riff with a Hammond B3 in it that is just amazing that Rod Argent played himself. And the lyrics are this. And if it's hard, don't let it get you down. You can take it. And if it hurts, don't let them see you cry. You can make it. Hold your head up. <laughs> All right. <laughs> 
And by the way, I learned something, which is appropriate for our text today, because it's hold your head up, woman, hold your head up. It's not hold your head up, whoa, it's hold your head up, woman, hold your head up, woman, hold your head up, woman, hold your head high. And then the second verse. (laughs) And if they stare, just let them burn their eyes on your moving. And if they shout, don't let it change a thing that you're doing. Hold your head high. The call to the church, the call to the people of God, is always a call to confidence, to a life with faith, a life of bold perseverance. It is a bold perseverance that's born of the faithfulness of God toward us. And so I want to quote one passage in closing because it's a call to live as the church of Jesus Christ and to live in this boldness. It's from the writer of Hebrews in the 10th chapter, one that I use constantly. Therefore, my friends, since we have the confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true faith, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who has promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Let's pray. Keep our eyes fixed, O God, on the assurance of things hoped for and the substance of things not always seen. Help us to know that in spite of our circumstances, we belong body and soul in life and in death, not to ourselves, but to you. So give us the power and the freedom to live into that truth and to so live confidently trusting that you are at work to bring about your will. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.